0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Christy Coffee Podcast. This is Pastor Hike, and we have our good friend, uh, Dr. Christy Kaderian, on the show today. Uh, welcome, Christy. How are you doing?
1: Doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it's so good. So uh, you just wrapped up your uh, doctoral dissertation, um, like last year? Was it uh, over a year ago?
1: Yeah, last year, May 2019.
0: And, and what was it on? Hmm.
1: Yeah, so I did my research on intergenerational trauma for descendants of Armenian genocide survivors. And uh, a little bit of the backstory. So I went to a conference on um, trauma and heard from some of these researchers specifically that researched the Holocaust and a lot of um, what they found. And also the field of epigenetics has also found that things passed down, um, including trauma, passed down from generations through the Holocaust. So um, when I heard that, I um, did some just preliminary preliminary research and found that there weren't um, any researchers doing this on the Armenian Genocide, um, mostly because it happened like one generation before the Holocaust. So they felt like it's harder to find the traces of that trauma being passed down. But um, what they, what Epigenetics has also found is that it actually passes to third and fourth generations, which is what we're in right now as Armenians. So I heard that the, the thought of like, if if I don't research this, like who's gonna research this? And um, what they tell you in your doctoral program is you know how and um, you'll probably find out Jeremy in your research is that they'll tell you to research something that's really important to you because you're gonna have to be married to this topic for a bit of time. So I just felt like God was calling me to look more into this specifically. I research women in leadership positions because my doctorate um, focuses on organizational psychology and leadership. And um, I was really interested in how these traces, both of trauma and resilience, can be found in Armenian women in the workplace and in mm-hmm. their career path and how that could help motivate them towards leadership opportunities, but how those traces can also be found, a lot of the research has found that there are implications in self-esteem and that kind of um, belief in self and that can have a lot of implications professionally. So I was really interested in seeing that connection of what are the obstacles um, that this phenomenon can um, you know, create for, women, Armenian women specifically, and also how have those that are already in leadership positions found uh, that they have overcome those obstacles and the resilience has also been passed down um, from generations. So that's what I, that's kind of the short story of it.
2: (laughs) That's like years of your life dedicated to a topic, (laughs) like rendered down to a few minutes.
1: Exactly. That's awesome. (laughs) Thanks for letting me do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
2: (laughs) So, um I think for maybe a lot of our listeners, the word like or the phrase "intergenerational trauma" might be a little foreign. I think um, a lot of times people just assume that like when we 're born into the world, it's like a blank slate, and we just start out fresh. Um, you know, nothing really affects us. we just get to make our own decisions moving forward um, and I think research and obviously just experience has shown that we're all born into a soil that sort of raises us into certain t- certain types of people and shapes us a certain way. So obviously trauma would be a huge um, uh, a huge difficulty to overcome. Just entering into the world with that and, be, and inheriting that from your forefathers and your, your generations before. So maybe just um, if you could explain a little bit uh what this concept of intergenerational trauma um is um you know maybe even more specifically what we mean by trauma because it doesn't necessarily need to just be uh, genocide is also psychological trauma and mental health issues that are passed down so yeah i'd love for you to just kind of speak to that
1: yeah so uh, um to break it down and there this is an evolving field just as a disclaimer so we're discovering new things in psychology on a daily basis similar to any science as a social science we're constantly doing research and learning more so previously what we felt or believed that trauma was was that there was some specific event that occurred that um, had significant implications um, physiologically psychologically that then we saw these symptoms after that event. So, what's changed in the research is that we no longer believe that there needs to be like a certain event. And um, a lot of times trauma now is referred to as like little T or big T trauma, which also they're kind of, we're moving away from that belief as well. But that was kind of, um, in that time in our field, we were trying to come up with a way to communicate that some things could be traumatic to some person you know maybe we all think that somebody getting in a car accident is very traumatic but maybe to that individual person that wasn't did, wasn't traumatic but maybe being bullying and bullied in school we might say that's normal someone shouldn't have these significant traumatic um, symptoms but that kid first with their personality their background that was very traumatic to them so we did make some strides in the field to say okay We can't just say trauma is these really uh, terrible things that happen and we can expect these same symptoms. So we really have to look at it individual, but now it's more about what um, either event or experience has happened to a person. And the trauma is actually the way that we respond to whatever the experience is. The trauma isn't the event. So when we're talking about intergenerational trauma or cultural trauma, we're talking about um, an experience that has happened and the way that the people that have experienced it have created that narrative then is passed down to um, further generations. And the field of epigenetics um, supports this belief with, in our physiology because they found in levels, in blood levels, in different physiological symptoms, that even if we don't have an emotional experience, our body has that experience of what has happened. So um, in intergenerational trauma, what we're finding is that the traumatic experience um, has affected us both biologically You know, in, the, in our um, DNA in the field of epigenetics has found that and then psychologically we found that the way that our ancestors have made meaning and or not made meaning of those traumatic events has also been passed down. So there are different phenomenons within that that we found um, can be very traumatic, such as the um, a researcher in the Holocaust found that the conspiracy of silence, meaning they didn't even talk about what happened to them, was also very traumatic for future mm. generations with um, children because there were really severe psychological effects. You know, there's stories of, and we have this in the Armenian genocide, um, of parents, p- survivors just being very depressed or. Um, having a lot of symptoms but they just never talked about it so it was very traumatic for their children to know that their parents went through such horrific acts such as rape and then not know anything about the story because no nobody talked about it so even that experience is traumatic so we're really broadening our view of what trauma is but what's really important to keep in mind is that it is an individual experience for different people and it's even in the Armenian culture um a big piece of this has to do with where um, your family might have immigrated into the diaspora because there's many, um, there's a lot of research on the fact that some families from Armenia to another uh, war-torn country after the Mm -hmm. genocide and then had to experience additional levels of trauma, you know, my own family went to Lebanon and there was, it was very, um, know there was a lot of trauma there then fought in the war there so that actually increased their um, levels of being susceptible to traumatic symptoms because they were already building off this baseline and then they had another experience happen um, whereas people who might have just fled you know to America or um, somewhere that wasn't war-torn might not have those same symptoms so we really have to approach Um, you know, this conversation and experiences of people with a lot of grace and empathy, because even though we all are Armenian, we all have such um, diverse experiences individually. So we have to have information about what could be going on in our culture and then um, pay attention to individual stories.
0: Wow. Wow. So you mentioned that a lot of the the people who've experienced trauma uh, have difficulty talking about these, these big evils. Um, and I find that as a pastor, sometimes when people aren't just honest with what happened to them, it's hard to treat them. Um, so can you speak into that? Like, what are some tactics as a counselor that you use to get people to just open up? And why, why do you think there's this barrier that prevents people from just having these honest conversations of, of bad things that happen to them?
1: Yeah, so um and we often talk about this in Armenian culture as like, oh, you want to keep everything in the family. And that's true of us as a collectivistic culture. Many collectivistic cultures have that um shame um factor, the culture of shame that they don't want to, you know, talk about things. You're just supposed to kind of hide them. But um I venture to say that that's actually a root um of what we experience at the genocide and not wanting to talk about that, and that's carried on to um, individuals today of there being some inherent shame. And one of the reasons that I studied um, Armenian women specifically is that gender and genocide is a a, a very um, specific topic that it doesn't have a lot of research around it. And that's because Mm -hmm. a lot of women, um, you know, either had these very traumatic experiences such as rape um, or their women or their children being taken away from them. Um, or they had to assimilate to a culture um, and, you know, deny their uh, marriage or whatever and be married into this other culture. But women specifically um, shouldered, you know, 80% of the survivors of the genocide were women and children. So they really shouldered this leadership mm-hmm. um, role. But then along with that, they had to be really strong. And in their mindset, being strong was that we don't talk about, um, you know, what happened and we don't, you know, put that burden on our kids we carry that on our on ourselves but what we don't realize is that when you carry the burden on our, on yourself and you don't talk about it it seeps out in other ways so there's really no way of hiding from what you went through um, it's just going to come out in different ways that are actually potentially more harmful for your children and family because they don't actually know why where if we did have those conversations and Um, those those narratives were able to have the room to grow, then we could actually grow from that rather than kind of thinking that, oh, because my mom never talked about anything, my grandma never talked about anything, I need to also not talk about anything. And that um, perpetuates a cycle of like mental health issues in our culture because we just think we just have to, you know, if we struggle with anything, that means we're um, shaming our ancestors who survived. And so we can't talk about, Anything difficult, we're only survivors and we only are, you know, talking about good things. So, that I think we kind of do a disservice. But if we're able to start those conversations and accept the things that we're going through, then we can really create a new narrative uh, for ourselves. So, I think it starts, especially, I think it starts in the church because we have that opportunity to um, come together as believers and have that community that's filled with grace. And you can come you know, to Christ with your shame. So I think that Christians and the church community can really model that in, in the rest of our culture to say that this is really the real solution to what we experienced.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting that, like, we have, um, we have this sense that, like, silence is somehow protecting the next generation. Like, I'm not going to let what's toxic go to the next generation but it seems like and maybe you can speak to this too or maybe you'll save it for later but it seems like being able to share those stories and those narratives with the next generation also potentially can offer like a contagious resilience for the next generation where they can be like wow my parents went through this and they're here now and what can I learn from them and how they were challenged and how they brought you know brought themselves from there to here and how I can participate in that history and that tradition of, you know, being able to go through such difficult things and stay, you know, together with my community and my family. Um,
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I think that as much as we focus, um, you know, rightfully so, we mourn and we remember um, the genocide, we have a legacy of resilience that We really should also be celebrating, you know, beyond April 24. Um, And and in my research, what I found was that um, those that resilience and that encouragement was often within the family and and the women that I um, interviewed, their fathers were often the source of that encouragement and that and that ability to. Um, you know, boost their self-esteem when they didn't really have it or, you know, have that belief in themselves. So I feel like that, you know, in our current culture, that kind of uh, man-shames people. I think that that, that's a really awesome example, especially in our um, family-oriented community, that men can kind of um, provide that encouragement and be that source of like resilience as well. Um, But I think that that comes with the introspection of um, being able to go into your emotional world and not just um, be strong in other ways. So I think that um, if we can do that, that's when we're really building on top of the legacy of survivor, survival that our ancestors left, left us. If we can say, yeah, we survived like in body, but like let's also show that survival and resilience in spirit and emotionally and psychologically, and then we can eat, grow even more.
0: Yeah, I find it fascinating, like the problem to talk about generational trauma, like we have that shame factor in like the Eastern Armenian mindset. And then we have the generational factor, because we think we're these vacuums, because we're American, we're individualistic, I'm not connected, I'm my own independent person. So it's like these two cultural layers, we have to unpeel, so that we can understand that we, we are not born in vacuums. And that if we don't talk about this, it's going to affect us. So we have to talk about it. Um, and I, I guess just just acknowledging the cultural layers is a huge part uh, as well. So uh, when you uh, said resilience, is there like a technical term for that? Like uh, what, what do you mean by resilience? Is there, is there a term in psychology that I'm missing out? Because I hear the term and I, I get it. Is it just our, what, 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 do you, what do you mean by resilience?
1: Yeah, so resilience, uh, basically within the field of psychology, we're studying what are the factors that help people overcome Um, obstacles, suffering, trauma, what are those um, like core things that help somebody overcome? So that's what we're looking at in resilience, what, um, you know, self-esteem, motivational constructs, those are all tied into that. Um, Another term in the field of psychology is grit. Um, So like what the grit and that research looked at a lot of inner city kids and Um, you know, what are the factors that help the kids come out of these circumstances, but they're able to overcome all these obstacles and still achieve academic success or whatever they are able to achieve. And we know all those stories. Um, And so the the resilience is basically that, like, what are those factors that you draw upon in order to overcome um, obstacles?
0: Okay, cool. Very cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And on the note that you said too, that I wanted to um, bring up about, you know, how we're Armenian Americans, that's kind of a main interest clinically for me and why I wanted to research this is that, um, so I specialize in working with eating disorders and um, I would get referrals for um, Armenian girls, like adolescent, young adult girls that struggled with eating disorders. And um, I, I thought that that was, you know, interesting that I was seeing this theme. Um, not interesting that I am getting Armenian referrals because that's everyone sees your last name. Jeremy probably knows this. They see your last yeah. name, They're like oh, Armenian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so,
0: for, for, uh, for those for those who don't know, if you have an IAN at the end of your name, uh, <laughs> chances are you're Armenian.
1: Gives us away, yeah. <laughs> there had to be something for us to find each other, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I um, would see you know women that were going through this, and what was so interesting is that. Um, Part of eating the eating disorder is that there's like a thin ideal, which is a very American westernized um, uh, thought that, you know, to be thin is the ideal. And then um, women that I worked with were coming from Armenian families were like, you know, you're supposed to be eating, if you're not eating, like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're getting force fed all the time by every, you know, woman in your family. So they were, there were these competing ideals within their culture of like, okay, well, culturally, I'm supposed to be this way. But in Westernite, like, I want to assimilate. So I want to be this way. So they were in very, um, that tension was like the root of of how do I um, balance these identities and Um, And that was very anxiety provoking. so I think that that's one of the ways that um, was interesting because, you know, for us as an Armenian culture, like, you know, um, for uh, people in this country, when they learned about Armenians, they saw the New York Times front page, you know, starving Armenians, and so we kind of went the other way of, like, oh, food is our, like, symbolic way to say we survived and, like, we're going to eat, but then when that, however that's... um, interpreted in your specific culture can really have effects on how you interact um and you know and then it could have like i said some unspoken things come up like eating disorders is a way that are we um communicate something that we can't communicate verbally mm-hmm. so that um was really interesting for me and um also brought up curiosity as to how we can be um, Armenians in a society in um you know in the u s or societies that are really different um, at their core
2: That's so fascinating I don't think i um had ever thought about the presentation of a symptom or a presentation of a mental health issue um specifically as a result of that acculturation. So I'm, I'm interested, I'm curious, like when you say eating disorder specifically, did it lean more towards, did you see more bulimic or anorexic? Because I would imagine that like disconnect between the two cultures might tend towards bulimia, but is that what you typically saw?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I typically saw bulimia. There were a few cases where um, they, there was either binge eating and mostly because of like shame. And then mm-hmm. also a few cases of um, anorexia as like there were a lot of resistances towards family dynamics in general so as Mm. like an act of resistance they just went completely the other way Mm. and that drew more concern and attention because in our culture it's like you lost a lot of weight it's like what happened like what's wrong with you but then you're also getting the mixed message because if you are too overweight that's not like good either so you kind of have to find this like balance of being acceptable and also in our culture everyone Kind of comments on everything, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> sometimes, so they you kind of and that and how you look is something that you can't really hide right. um, from people. So in in our you know in that monitoring that shame and that kind of conversation around hiding and not talking about things like that's a way that your body just like you know well this is I'm struggling and this is I can't hide it basically. So that's why if we're having those conversations and doing that work. Then we're not going to um, spill out in like these other ways that aren't helpful
2: for us. Would you say like a helpful, like just mental health principle in general is that like symptom presentations are a result of like internal, like, I don't want to say dysfunction. That's not an appropriate way to say it, but like some sort of internal working dynamic that's happening, like symptom presentation is not necessarily what needs to get fixed There's something internal that needs to be worked on.
1: Right. Yeah. I'm never coming in and saying, oh, well, you, you know, here's your, what you should be eating or whatever. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Um, mm -hmm. We're always looking at the deeper issue, but Mm -hmm. with some symptoms, we also need to address the symptoms because sometimes if the symptom doesn't change, which, you know, and, um, and people have a lot of beliefs around medication things like that, but sometimes they're, you know, where God made us to have, um, you know, body, mind, spirit. So we have, um, that's like all integrated so sometimes we need to be focusing more on the body than that like shifts into helping with mm. um mm. our spirit and emotionally and psychologically you know uh, if we're trying to like bang our head over the wall saying philippians 4 like don't be anxious <laughs> but we are struck you know we actually have a genetic right. predisposition <laughs> towards being anxious and we have to you know be obedient to using what god's given us to pay attention to that and that's how we can really um And in this conversation, I think that a big piece of our culture is that we identify around the struggle that we've been through. And then uh, subconsciously, what could be happening is that we feel like if we succeed or are doing well, we're like betraying that identification Mm -hmm. with the struggle. So we really have to be able to um, honor that, but also recognize that honoring that means that we're going to grow and work on ourselves to be Better and be a generation of people that have really survived in multiple ways. So that's like a really um, it's a kind of complex topic, but I think really important to keep in mind when we're talking about you know um, our identity as Armenians and how that's wrapped up in in, in the genocide um, in the struggle of the genocide, rather than trying to build the narrative out um, as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, I. I kind of want to. you said anxiety and I want to lean into that for a minute (laughs) did you find that um, anxiety was a common symptom among like second third generation uh yeah okay So, (laughs) so I would love to just explore like obviously there's uh there's a likely connection between anxiety and how you parent a child right and and how attachment patterns form there's even a attachment pattern called anxious avoidant right so um how does how does that all affect like what's the dynamic that transfers intergenerationally from anxiety to parenting a child and then that child being sent off into the world with that kind of parenting
1: yeah. So it, yeah, you said it exactly right. So what we're what we found um, specifically in my research, there was always the um, the thread of a female figure either exhibiting symptoms of depression or anxiety, and yeah. often uh, symptoms of PTSD. So nightmares, yeah. um, traumatic memories of you know fleeing the genocide or what they experienced. And then what basically they found in epigenetics is that um, in mothers specifically, that is where um, the passing down of um, the genes of the DNA that um, passes down trauma, that's where that happens. So we're experiencing that predisposition, I think, to anxiety. And then on top of that, it's the environment. So the nature and nurture conversation that we have often is the environment that's created and this is also supported just by the trauma that gets passed down so hypervigilance i don't know if uh you guys are boys I and mean, maybe you had a different experience but like girls we, i was never allowed to like sleep over at a, yeah. another friend's house like all my like friends and you know i went to a um multicultural school christian school so it wasn't only armenians but Um, You know, I was like, why can't I get like, no, no, they could only be at your house with this like hypervigilance. And I thought, oh, this is like normal. But then when you go to other people's (laughs) houses, it's not really what happens. It's more, it's that like hypervigilance of like safety and wanting to, um, you know, keep um, us safe. And that was like a big uh, heightened uh, priority, especially for women, I think, but in the Armenian culture. So that has its roots in like the anxiety and the hypervigilance. Um, and what you know I, when I learned about like my family um, survival stories, that that kind of experience of okay, wanting to keep everybody safe and making sure because if you if you misstep, like we could you know everyone's dead. So that kind of yeah. gets passed down of yeah. this is survival. This isn't about socializing or whatever. But then that cause, you know that causes me to always be like oh okay like let me make sure like are, are we safe like everyone's safe here yeah, yeah. some an, another inner dialogue that's happening that we kind of normalize like oh everybody does this and then when we talk to other people maybe not
2: everybody yeah does. yeah and it's funny just like i mean i would hope what being aware of these things does is create a sense of empathy for our like our parents and also like an awareness of what's going on in us But it's just funny how like growing up in that environment, you're like, you can almost just see it. It's like, it's annoying. Like, why should I have to go through this? Like, mom, Bob, like, I don't want to have to worry about every little thing, you know? Um, And so, and maybe like in our interactions with other Armenians to be like, God, this is such an annoying thing to see in my culture or among my people, but then to be able to step back and like discover some of the some of what's going on behind the scene like hopefully that will create some empathy in how we actually interact with others and that's ultimately like uh, a manifestation of Jesus's call for us to love our neighbor like we should be able to empathize with the people who we don't understand and i'm i was having this thought yesterday that you know Jesus tells us to love our enemies right and so i wonder if even just being able to learn why your enemy reacts a way they do or why your enemy um, presents a certain way or has that animosity, like empathy can even be an act of love towards people that you disagree with and, and that are ultimately your enemy. Anyway, sorry, I'm a pastor, so I got to bring in the little Jesus stuff every (laughs) once in a while.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I I actually like, I don't come this from the the psychological background, but from just the biblical perspective, like the word iniquity is different than sin and it's used in the scriptures and iniquity implies generational, Sin, like it's the sin of your forefathers. And like you have Nehemiah 9, where the people of God gather and they confess the sins of their ancestors, like with the American evangelical mindset, like you don't have to confess the sins of your ancestor, you could just, it's all about your personal sin and your salvation. But on the flip end of that, it's not just your personal sin, but the sin that's been committed against you, which is, I would say, a form of trauma, right? Um, and then the tools we have is to forgive. And I, I find that uh, I've seen breakthrough when I prayed over people, uh, again, just kind of following the lead of the Holy Spirit while I'm praying with people to, to ask for forgiveness to the perpetrators of of people groups or specific individuals who have affected your family in certain ways, and that leading to relief, not just for uh, the person in, in the immediate, like uh, someone who's affected the person, but someone who's affected your ancestors. And I've seen breakthroughs happen where people have... Uh, kind of helped overcome their anger issues or, or their anxious issues by, by actually just praying through these things and, and seeing uh, exactly what you're talking about. Uh, but it, it's fascinating. Cause I I'm, I'm just going after this from a biblical perspective, but just hearing all this is just reassuring. Cause I always want to make sure that experience is backed up by Bible, but also backed up with science. So uh, it's, it's great to hear all this stuff um, with epigenetics and, and the generational trauma. Did you, did you discover
2: in your research? So, I mean, we talk about a genetic passing down. Is there, uh, th- did you come across or Did you even work in like neurological, um, passing down? Like, cause I think w- we've started to learn like neuroplasticity affects the ways that we like even just think and the way our brains work and that can be passed down by habits of life and things like that. But does that also get affected intergenerationally? Um,
1: yeah. So I didn't focus on it specifically in my research because I was coming from just like the psychology and focusing more on like the nurture piece. But in my like lit review part where I was reading a lot about what they found about epigenetics, basically what's happening when trauma gets passed down is that the neurons in your brain are changing the neural pathways. So basically you're creating new neural pathways Um, when trauma is experienced and that's kind of what epigenetics is like it turns on certain genes when you experience an outer effect so you have um you know we all have whatever dna we have but we found that now uh, nurture what you experience can potentially turn on or off that gene so sometimes we talk about that in predisposition to like alcoholism alcoholism whatever um you haven't had any experiences that might trigger that like trauma then you might not actually have that um in your life or that you might not present with that. So um, in that sense, there is definitely a lot that is shifted. And what we, like you said, kind of before that we can have empathy around is that, you know, when we are looking at somebody else's experience or potentially judging them, we really don't know what our potential experience could have been had Mm God not, you know, orchestrated certain circumstances in our lives that prevented that from happening so when we are are judging somebody else we have to have that mindset that we're all sinners and we the only reason we're not acting like somebody else did is maybe we didn't have the same experiences they did or we hadn't come they hadn't come to christ the same time we did or whatever it is so we really need to kind of have that um have that lens when we're looking at people because um, it's such a, a fine uh, tuning when we're yeah. kind of self-righteous. We're like, well, you just missed your one traumatic experience away from being that guy that you think is like the worst or whatever. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think that that's like a really important thing to remember. And also like what I was saying, I love that, th- that biblical um, thread of generational trauma b- or generational sin, because I think that that really supports what we do in in psychology, and I think every theory in psychology has a biblical root and foundation that um, is really, like, important to notice that, because the field of psychology isn't against what God's saying, that it's just a, um, it's just, like, a continued um, conversation, and more has been done based on what happens in the Bible, so I think that's important, because I think sometimes people think like oh psychology its like bad or anti-god or something but it's really not it's like god like created all of these um concepts and they all have like a biblical you can trace it back there yeah
0: yeah, yeah. can we uh I, I know this is important to talk about we don't want to avoid what's happening in america right now with uh the african-american community um but i, th- I think if we think about this problem versus it becoming a reactionary political thing from the lens of generational trauma of of descendants who experienced segregation and sla- slavery i, I think it going back to the empathy is is huge uh i mean we have to keep in mind that like if martin luther king wasn't assassination assassinated he'll probably be uh, still alive today like it's not that <laughs> long ago yeah.
1: yeah 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 and i think the um the big thing especially in my research so the intergenerational trauma started in research um, on the holocaust and then when i started researching um, there are many genocides that in the focus group I was in, there were groups um, from the African American community as well as the Native American community. Research around um, so, so many different communities that have experienced the same phenomenon. So I think it's really important. And there's uh, researchers. I don't know if you guys um, offer resources, but there's a specific researcher that um, studied what she uh, termed post-traumatic slave syndrome. So um, and the way she describes it is so similar to what we've experienced as Armenians, I think we can have a lot of empathy for the experience of Black Americans um, today because um, often sometimes people might look at the Armenian genocide and say, that was so long ago. Why does anybody care anymore? The current people in Turkey did not do the genocide. So why are we so upset? What's really important to remember is that Um, Although the actual genocide isn't happening, there's this term that they come up with around like psychological genocide. So we, um, this is like really deep rooted trauma that we are the third or fourth generation uh, recipient of. But what's really happening is that it's triggering that whatever happens, whatever, um, you know, whoever recognizes the genocide or doesn't recognize it or Turkey said this or whatever, this is triggering all of the past trauma. So When we look at what's happening um, with Black Americans today, when we say, oh, this is one incident, oh, you know, this might, um, this happens to other people, what we're really doing is we're invalidating their years of trauma. So if somebody told us, you know, oh, the Armenian genocide, well, what about the Holocaust? And we would be like, yeah, of course, but also this this doesn't negate that what we went through. And um, what I find really interesting as well is that, when I did my research, um, specifically around the field of educational leadership, when, you know, the first people that were killed in, um, in the Armenian genocide were, as we know, the intellectuals on Red Sunday. We mm-hmm. went mm-hmm. after people that were um, intellectuals. So what in my research, what I was really interested in looking at is a subconscious um, aversion we have towards leadership because, or, you know, education, even though that's so yeah. important in our culture, all of a sudden, you know, we were the first people targeted, so it's like, good that you're getting recognized good that you're smart and a leader but it's also like that so keep your head down yeah exactly like <laughs> be a leader but like not so these kind of mixed messages and same in the um black american community and the african-american mm-hmm. experience um they in what dr joy degru talks about in post-traumatic slave syndrome is that when um you know a little boy was growing up on a plantation and he was like working hard or whatever and then the slave owner would come by and be like oh, well, he's growing up good, oh, he's doing good, the mom would, like, try to hide him, but then the little boy doesn't understand. He's like, oh, I'm doing good, whatever, but he doesn't understand that that actually means, like, you're getting sold and you're getting taken away from your mom. So similar uh, threads of this can be seen currently of, like, and you might say, oh, well, why aren't uh, they, you know, well, they can create, you know, in America, anyone can create whatever future they want, but we don't understand the psychological threads like that one of, oh well if I'm doing well that's good I guess but also really bad because in my experience when I was the top worker in the slave plantation that actually meant like I was getting taken away from my family be harder, yeah. whatever it was so we really have to look at someone's full story before we we say like oh well anybody can you know create whatever life they want here or do whatever they want with their life well not really because we have so many, that is true on some level, but we have so many factors we have to take into account when we're having that experience. And we can only know that for our own individual experience, not somebody else's.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, um, I just, and it's a question to to all of us, but I don't, and I don't really know the answer. Maybe we could explore it, but there's also a strain like within Armenian culture that just um, resists empathy for like other groups that are marginalized or persecuted. And I wonder like where that comes from, like what kind of like psych dynamics are happening underneath the radar there. And I don't know if you came across that in your research or if that's just something that um, that we have to speak to through experience, but I've just, uh, you know, like when we talk about what happened to Native Americans in the US, and uh, African Americans in the US, like it just, It's, there's so many, obviously there's many contrasts, but there's so many parallels with our own cultural experience. Like, I don't know why um, we would have an aversion to empathize.
0: Is it potentially like an over resilience? Like we're able to be super resilient, therefore like we expect other people to be resilient or is it just like this, like this pride that one ups? Like, okay, we have the genocide card. Like we've been through a lot too. So like you could get through everything um i'm sure there's multi-facets here um
1: yeah so um i have two theories about this one that i experienced on my own when i was researching um intergenerational trauma with the armenian genocide i had people i spoke to that were you know experts in studying the armenian genocide that said why are you going to study the Holocaust? <laughs> like, why are you going to look at their stuff? Why are you going to kind of use their stuff to talk to art? Like just study the genocide, like just study Armenians. Like, and, um, and then I had people that were like, wow, this is so awesome because you're integrating other people's research and you're building this integrated view that Armenians aren't doing. If you're studying Armenians, you're usually just like, studying Armenians and all, the only people who care about that are other Armenians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of went through that experience when I was doing my research that I feel like, well, the best, res- the best uh, resources we have are when we pool all together and we use those resources um, to help multiple groups because we've all experienced the same phenomenon in our uh, communities. And that like really led me to a lot of opportunities. I worked with um, I was part of a Jewish symposium on this mm. topic. There's a new uh, Center for Genocide Studies at USC that I've gotten to be a part of um, because I used kind of their <laughs> research to apply to our people um, instead of in this like siloed approach. So um, that my thought is that there is this belief in all of us and human nature that if somebody else gets Get something, then we lose out, like the scarcity model, but like, you know, that Jesus can give us abundant life, so we have to have like an abundant view that like, that doesn't mean because somebody else is do, getting something or getting a, a more of recognition, that doesn't mean that we don't, so I think that that's like a really negative thing that we buy into often, human nature and Armenians. but I also think another piece of it, and Martin Luther King talked about it when he was asked, You know what about um jews in the slums that work themselves up like what why can they succeed and you know you're saying that um you you know black americans are struggling and he said well you can come to this country and change your name and nobody will really tell you know racially that you're different and you know some of us as armenians we've benefited in that way as well we were able Mm -hmm. to come to this country Um, and not, you know, not in chains and not, um, we were able to assimilate into the white race um, culture. And I think that that um, piece of it makes us feel like, well, we can't kind of, you know, um, if we have um, created this alliance in benefiting from this white privilege, then we also um, can't feel like if we, you know, have any of these conversations then we're not, we're kind of, we're kind of negating what we've gained from being coming to this mm. country and experiencing that
0: yeah i i also like i guess to have a positive spin on the generational trauma there's also like generational blessing so you inherit also the good things right uh um any Anything in your research that speaks to that?
2: That's a nice pivot. Can we have some good news, Chris? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I know, I'm not getting invited back here, but I also talk about finding the love of your life, so that's a good topic. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so in a lot of my research, what I found was that when we um, are looking and getting that encouragement from mentorship, from people in our families, And when we have an experience of overcoming an obstacle, that gives us the, um, kind of helps our self-efficacy to continue to pursue those, um, pursue leadership and career advancement opportunities. Especially for women, we're also kind of dealing with the balancing of familial rules, which can create some shame, like, oh, if I'm not focusing on my family, my career is suffering. If I'm not focusing on my career, my family is suffering. So it kind of can tap into that. But I think that one of the big things I learned um, is, and the implications for my research, is that having um, a network of mentors, specifically Armenians, um, and that mentorship alliance, which is something that, you know, we can definitely talk about and create, that has really helped um, people. They can always identify a mentor that helped them uh, kind of continue on in their career path. And additionally, having that uh, family encouragement and experiencing that um, at home from within your one of your, uh, you know, parental figures is so important. Um, you only need one parental figure to help you, um, like b- you know, believe in yourself. And that was found definitely in the research that um, there were there was that thread as well. But I think that the um, talking about our narratives. Talking about our family stories, like drawing on our family's resilience, uh, are all really important things to do um, personally. And you know, writing those down, helping that oral tradition actually um, be concretized in writing it down, and um, is also really important to think about because we, um, you know, we're a few generations out, and some of us don't even know our family's survival stories, or you know, there's a lot of secrecy, or whatever you can do, whatever oldest family member whoever you have like that knows something write that down so that you can draw upon those uh, sources for your own personal like resilience and advancement
2: and I would imagine I mean we spoke specifically to the Armenian genocide but that principle of kind of contagious intergenerational resilience that's like pretty broadly applicable Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah
1: definitely so um and I think that Um, The more that you kind of recognize areas of resilience in other people's stories, the easier you can um, for yourself. So I think that we can draw that inspiration um, from like, you know, in all cultures can draw that inspiration from themselves, uh, from their own, you know, family stories.
2: And, and I think that's why we so appreciate, I mean, especially Armenians, but every culture, I think, appreciates when they see themselves on the screen in right. a movie where somebody is like a hero or courageous, like, yeah, you know, it really just makes you feel like somebody stood up and made it for you, and you like kind of inherit that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and definitely in multicultural research, what we continue to find is that uh, representation matters. So, Mm. you know, people, I know sometimes people don't like the people, (laughs) Armenians representing us, AKA the Kardashians, but representation does really matter for, um, and that's why, you know, in these racial conversations where we're talking about like Barbies or Band-Aids or whatever, and, you know, um, and having that representation there is so important for people to grow out of that um that mentality of kind of just surviving rather than thriving
2: yeah that's awesome well christy i want to thank you for sitting in on this conversation it's been really nice to connect with you um i'm at the end of my coffee cup um, <laughs> and i think i think haig is too Almost. and you are good so um I'm before sure. <laughs> we before we wrap up um i just want to give you an opportunity to let people know how to find you um i think uh, i've seen you on Instagram pretty regularly. Do you have a psychology today profile? Um, I'd love to just let you kind of let us know how to find you
1: yeah sure so you can find me at my website um dr i'm assuming you're putting my how to spell my name uh, no. dot com i'm used to be charcutian but now it's my middle name but that's me if you see me it's Kadarian now um dot com and i'll i'll plug nautic push because he created my website and it's awesome if you need a website awesome <laughs> um and on instagram at the date dr Christy. Um, and typically, and a lot of my work has to do with relationships which we'll talk about later. Um, and so, yeah, so yeah, you can find me at either of those places to work with me individually. I do uh, therapy and coaching and consulting, um, on all sorts of things. So we, cool. um, excited to connect with you guys.
2: Awesome. Christy, thank you so much, uh, for being on here. It's been a long time since we connected, so I'm glad to see you on and be able to connect and, uh, Haig?
0: Yeah, this is a wonderful conversation. Look forward to the future uh, episodes we're going to do about coaching and dating in specific. Uh, So we'd love to have you come back on. Um, This is uh, great to think about, especially now. Um, But yeah, I think it's super important. Like it's always just to be aware of awareness is the first step to always find healing always. Uh, And this is wonderful. Um, So yeah, for the viewers out there, like, don't live this life alone. I know I'm going to get pastoral here, but it's so important. Uh, seek help. We all, we all have our faults. We all have our trauma that we've inherited, our blessings and our curses, but we need to just talk, uh, talk it out with someone. Yeah. Awesome.
2: Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Take care. Stay caffeinated, everybody.
2: <laughs> Bye, everyone.